Peace to you. Welcome back to the Naked Truth. We're going to pick up what we left off in the book of 2 Kings, chapter 22, with verse 1. If you want to read along with me, let's begin. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Tadida, the daughter of Badea of Bozkah. So as always, please forgive me if I mispronounce any of these. We're talking about the next king in the area of kingdom of Judah. You see, once again, it's another little kid, an eight-year-old this time. Um, so again, we see the fulfillment of the Old Testament, as we call it, prophecies uh, that say that if the people behave a certain way, basically were not faithful, then God would give them children and women uh, to be their rulers. And it was said as an insult, though I don't feel that way about uh, women in positions of power, I think it's more important what their policies are rather than their, you know, gender, but that's just me. But it said, that's why we're reading it, that that's what would happen to the kingdom if they did. And so far we've read, and it was meant as an insult that it would be considered a bad turn of events. So there's like the second baby, young kid, king, that we're reading about, and we've already read about several women that were um, rulers over the people. And in most of, in both of the cases of the women, they were considered wicked and evil. Um, and the kids, the, the, the kings who started out as kids didn't always, at least in the last example, didn't end up so good either, even though he was the king for like almost six decades. Um, let's see if this one does any better. Verse uh, two, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in all the ways of his father, David. He did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. So this uh, king gets uh, a check mark from the narrator saying that uh, Josiah uh, did good and saying he did good like his father, David, not his literal father, but forefather, David, David and Goliath, David. He's been gone for some time now. Uh, in the narrative, so he's not his literal father. Um, but the thing to notice about that, I think, is that remember David did some pretty scandalous things, adultery and murder. And he put a hit out on somebody and had him killed so that he could take his wife, which he'd already taken and had uh, impregnated. So those are some of the, the things that are in the Big Ten that you're not supposed to do, and yet he did them. Um, and yet, you see, the narrator, human, remember, because the Bible is written by humans, so parts of it inspired by God, but scribed, written down by humans. Um, uh, in the human opinion, he's saying he did it right, just like his father David did. So, verse 3, now it came to pass in the 18th year of King Josiah that the king sent Shaphan, the scribe, the son of Azaliah, the son of Meshulam, to the house of the Lord, saying, so now some time has passed, um, 18th year of King Josiah, so um, he's grown up some, at least, what, he'd be 26 then by this time, and he's, something's been found um, by one of the scribes, I was just talking about the scribes, um, Let's see what he, uh, the messages that he's sending um, to the king, saying, verse 4, Go up to Hilkiah the high priest, that he may 
count the money which has been brought into the house of the Lord, which the doorkeepers have gathered from the people. So, um, did I read it wrong there? Um, the king. Okay, so it wasn't that someone sent the scribe to the king. The king is sending the scribe to the religious leaders to find out how much money has been collected, basically, in the collection baskets at church, um, though it's not actual church in this case. Um, but that's what he's been sent on an errand from by the king. Verse 5, and let him, let them deliver it into the hand of those doing the work, who are the overseers in the house of the Lord. Let them give it to those who are in the house of the Lord doing the work to repair the damages of the house. So it sounds a lot like Freemasons. They're saying, take the money. The political power, the king, is sending a messenger to the religious powers saying, take the money that's been collected and give it to the builders um, to repair damages to the house of the Lord. So again, sounds like Freemasons and politics working with religion. Verse 6, to carpenters and builders and masons, there you go, and to buy timber and hewn stone to repair the house. So it's not um, a myth that um, organizations like unions, Freemasons, politicians, religious leaders hold uh, a whole lot of authority in the world. And it goes way, 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 way back through different religions, through different countries, through different cultures, but the same sets of people hold on to power and use it, it seems, to pull strings. And they use the money that the people give to them because of the, the power that seeking religion holds. And then the political power and the religious power combining together now with um, the manpower. That's what the Masons are about. It's taking them uh, specialized, trained, specially trained people who help to actually physically build the society and setting them apart from everyone else so that they wield power also. Verse 7, however, there need be no accounting made with them of the money delivered into their hand because they deal faithfully. So there you go. The picture is complete. Now not only are you taking the money from the people, giving it to the uh, specialized groups, but then they're also saying there won't be any accounting of it. We trust you. Uh, just giving them basically free reign over what's happening in the society and using the religious, the political, and the uh, manpowers to pull it off. It's kind of crazy. It's almost like what's happening in modern times. That's exactly what's happening in modern times. Verse 8, Then Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the scribe, I found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. So the messenger um, has found something in the house of the Lord. He's found what's called the book of the law. So that's not just the Ten Commandments, because it wouldn't take a whole book to write down the Ten Commandments. Instead, it's the religious uh, doctrine, I guess would be the best word, of the people uh, when they were first delivered from enslavement in Africa. He's found references to it. Uh, but remember, it's been altered a lot beyond just the Ten Commandments. The religious powers, just like we read previously, did their part in doing what Jesus says. 
writing out burdens hard for people to bear while they themselves are not going to lift the burdens with one finger. They're not holding themselves to the same standards that they tell everyone else in society to be held to. And it's clear who gets the exemption, the religious, the political, and the man power and construction, union, that sort of thing, the organized powers um, that are exempt from the same laws they keep everyone else trapped by. Verse 9, so Shaphan the scribe went to the king, bringing the king word, saying, your servants have gathered the money that was found in the house and have delivered, in, delivered it into the hand of those who do the work, who oversee the house of the Lord. So it's complete. The money has been taken from the people and transferred to the builders, the masons, the carpenters, that union of builders. Verse 10. The Sh then Shaphan, the scribe, showed the king, saying, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. So among the things that Hilkiah, the messenger, I'm sorry, that Hilkiah, the priest, sent back with the messenger um, is a copy of the book of the law. So read that. So that the king will know it's been found. It's there also in case he wants to reflect on it. Verse 11, now it happened when the king heard the words of the book of the law that he tore his clothes. So the king is doing that dramatic thing of tearing his clothes to show that he's outraged about something. And what's he outraged about? He's just been read the book of the law. What's outraged in verse 12? Then the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam the son of Shaphan, Akbor the son of Micaiah. I thought it was an L, sorry. Micaiah, Shaphan the scribe, and Isaiah, the ser a servant of the king, saying, so now he's assembled a group of people and he's giving them a message. That's the king is giving these messengers this message. Verse 13. Go inquire of the Lord for me, for the people and all and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is aroused because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. So um, if you've read me before, you already understand um, the couple of words that were left out there that were read, just not read out loud. Just before we move on, Lord here is still being translated from the word Jehovah, just to be clear. And that's who is um, um, the king is sending messengers to be to go inquire of. It's the way that it'd be like going to see a fortune teller, but or a soothsayer, or a crystal ball reader, or a palm reader, or a tarot card reader, or a voodoo doctor, a witch doctor, a priest, a prophet, a seer, whatever you want to call him. He's trying to get in touch with the divine, and he's sending this delegation to go ask the Lord what's going on, where do we stand basically in God's eyes since the his him his forefathers have not been faithful to the things that he read that they're supposed to be faithful to in the book of the law. It's news to him. It'd be just like somebody discovering um, the red letter Christianity um, for the first time and realizing that, oh, the whole Bible was in Christianity. Just what Christ said, that's Christianity. And it'd be like an eye-opening event for him. He's seeing now 
where uh, his family, his kingdom hasn't been faithful. Verse 14, so, so, so Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam, Akbor, Shaphan, and Isaiah went to Huldah, the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikva, the son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe. She dwelt in Jerusalem in the second quarter, and they spoke with her. So all the men are mentioned by name as the delegation being sent, but they're being sent to a, a woman, or at least a prophetess, as she's being called here. And it doesn't sound like she's someone grand and fabulous. She's the wife of a, the keeper of the wardrobe. Her, so her husband is um, a, a, a bellhop. He sees to where what's happening with the clothes. Um, but she is the prophetess, the person who they're going to, to get in touch with God and see where they stand since they realize now the guilt of what the kingdom is guilty of. Verse 15, then she said to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel, tell the man who sent you to me. So um, they're going to her because apparently she has that power um, to be able, again, to get in touch with the divine and get messages from God. And it's a woman, uh, presumably a female, but for sure a woman um, that they're going to. So that lets us know when we read in the New Testament, uh, another religion that says, uh, that women shouldn't should be quiet in the church, shouldn't chatter in the church. However you want to um, translate it, it's saying that women have no role in teaching in the church. People will switch that around and say no one should be chattering in the church or talking in the church. That's true, but that's not the point. The point is women specifically were singled out to not have an active vocal role in the church. No matter how people want to twist it or change it, that's what that religion says. And people will twist it and change it in modern times, but that's not being faithful even to that religion. And that religion and that teaching isn't faithful to Christianity at all. It's, again, another religion altogether. But that's just another trap of religion and conflating religion with Christianity. They're not the same thing. So here we see a woman um, active in faith. Clearly, she's being consulted to be the one to get in touch with God, and she's letting him know Here's the message to send back to the one who sent you to me. Verse 16, thus says the Lord, behold, I will bring calamity on this place and on its inhabitants. All the words of the book, which the king of Judah has read. So um, the message isn't good. It's a bad omen in plain English that she has for the king, not for me, this place, but for that place where he is. Uh, and the kingdom for Jerusalem, for the kingdom of Judah. She's saying it's bad news. And everything you read in the book of the law um, is going to come to pass. And that will be just like I was just saying, having children as your rulers, having women as your rulers, because they've been unfaithful, along with all the other things, the other calamities is what she's specifically talking about that we've already read about that they're going to be subject to if they've been, if they are unfaithful, and we've read they've been unfaithful. Verse 17, because they've forsaken me and burned incense to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore, my wrath shall be aroused against this place and shall not be quenched. So um, the crime, the offense, is 
the worshiping other entities, the worship of other religions, the practice of other religions, that that's the problem, that they've um, burned incense to those other entities, those other deities, those other quote-unquote gods. That's the issue. And we've already read over the laundry list of them, and that's just a sample. Like we've said in the previous chapter, they worship the host of heaven. So that's count the stars, count the planets. They're worshiping them. They're considered gods, and they worship them. Um, and it's uh, it's the cause, according to the narrator here, that the prophetess is saying is the reason that the kingdoms are going to fall into trouble. Trouble. Verse 18, but as for the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of the Lord, in this manner you should speak to him. Thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning the words which you have heard. So now there's been a message delivered. The prophetess has given the message delivered that pertains to the kingdom, meaning the people in general, the citizenry. But she's saying now here's a message specifically for the king, the one who basically humbled himself once he found the law, tore his clothes because he was uh, felt that guilty in taking part or being a part of a kingdom that hasn't been faithful to God. Here's the message specifically for him, for Josiah, from the prophetess, but uh, just as the medium, it's being said to be from the Lord, or if you prefer Jehovah, but the prophetess is the medium that's delivering the message. Verse 19. Because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they would become a desolation and a curse, and you tore your clothes and wept before me. I also have heard you, says the Lord. Excuse me. So now the prophetess is... Proving or either proving herself to be a prophetess, prophetess, actual, uh, actually possessing the power to see like a seer would, in that she know knew that he tore his clothes and was uh, beside himself basically about what he read. Either she actually saw that and is able to let him know that God saw you when that happened, um, even though she wasn't there present to see it, or the narrators at work here scribe is at work here uh, putting the words into her mouth or the people who went to her with the message may have said the king is upset the king tore his clothes when he read what was in the law and almost that is entirely possible too so it could be either one of the three <clears throat> excuse me for the prophetess to be aware of the king's reaction to what he read in the law um, any one of the three is a possibility verse 20 in my mind, anyway. Verse 20, Surely, therefore, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all the calamity which I will bring on this place. So they brought back word to the king. So the good news um, of the message that the prophetess has for the king is that, well, the bad news is that there's going to be calamity. It's going to be terrible. It's going to be trouble taken to the people because they haven't been faithful. The good news is he won't be around to see all of it. Doesn't mean he won't see some of it. He just won't see all of it. So he'll probably begin to see the prophecies coming true, like the areas being taken captive by 
the Assyrians or whoever else attacks them, neighbors that attack them. Um, he may see that, maybe even the loss of different territories and things like that. But according to the prophetess, he won't see all of the calamity that the Lord, and just saying it's the Lord because it's how it reads, intends to bring on the people. Um, he'll be already, uh, he'll die in peace, basically, um, before uh, witnessing all the terror that will fall on the people for their unfaithfulness. That's the last verse in this chapter. So that's where I'll end this reading. But before I end this reading, there was one other thing I was going to mention, honorable mention, I would say, is a woman named, um, she went by Pastor West, in case people in the Carolinas might know about her, or even in Florida. She has a reputation. She was a seer. And so what made me think of it, it was in when we were reading about the different phallic symbols and religions in the previous chapter and how people were trying to just get the close close to God however they could when um, in modern times it'd be like if you try to read the Bible and you aren't getting any sort of supernatural enlightenment or movement in your faith, um, you might seek other ways. That's where I found myself, but not for those reasons. I found myself um, introduced to people who had those sort of powers because think people of the faith, Bible thumpers, turned me off from seeking Christ because of all the anti-gay, anti-LGBT rhetoric and dogma that people cling to in the Bible while ignoring the welcoming message of Christ in the Bible when it comes to the LGBT community. So um, it took me time before I discovered that, even though it's been written there all along, it took me time before I found that. So in the meantime, when I thought I was rejected by God because of the dogma of religion, my own self-conflating religion with Christianity. Um, because of that, I found myself seeking other means of getting to God since it seemed to me clear that according to what people were telling me in the Bible, God didn't want me. So it made me think, well, I know there's something bigger than what's going on. So I've got to find that some sort of way. And I think of that as God. So that's what made me, um, was part of what made me seek other things like medium, spiritist, um, witchcraft, and that sort of thing in the past. So, And then even realizing there is a truth, there is validity to those different belief systems. There are different means of people being able to get in touch with the divine. And I say all that to say Pastor West is one person who um, had that sort of power that I encountered in the past. My own um, childhood, Reverend Terry, you could Google him you could see he, you could probably Google Pastor West also and see the sort of um, things that are um, attributed to them and the powers that they had. Um, so I mentioned all that because to say that, um, oh, the thing about Pastor West that moved me and I only met her once was when a family member of mine was in some legal trouble. Um, some other family members of mine took me, uh, we, we, I went with them to go see if she could offer some sort of uh, spiritual help for him, some remedy for his situation. And um, the first thing she said when I met her, and I met her as, like I said, religion caused me uh, first at one point to turn away from religion. But before it caused me to do that, it caused me to turn away from way before that caused me to turn away from accepting and embracing the fact that I am under that LGBT umbrella. So it made me reject um, 
myself and, um, you know, being gay because when I was living as a guy, so I, I, re- I rejected all of dressing as a woman. Um, I guess you'd think of it as drag, even though at this point I consider it trans. Um, but it's, but it caused me to reject, reject all of that. And I hadn't had any real physical alterations or changes at that point. Um, so I gave it all up and tried to live as a guy and thought I was pulling it off. I do facial hair, cut my own hair short, but dress as a guy and try and act as much as a man as I could and thought I was doing all right. I even found myself a boyfriend and was trying to live as a guy and all of that stuff. And when I met this woman, going there, riding with people, looking for help um, for a family member, the first thing she said to me was, oh, you're too beautiful to be a boy. And when she said that, I felt embarrassed because I thought I was pulling off this um, boyhood thing. I thought I would, you know, was being passable as a guy. And it was the first thing she said to me. But um, it always stuck with me. And I think it stuck with the people who I was with, too, the family members I was with, too, because they'd seen me always as a guy, growing up as a guy, and they'd seen the different efforts at transition that I was trying to make. I think of it as like a caterpillar turning into a butterfly. It goes through some ugly stages, some unrecognizable stages, some stages you wouldn't even recognize it as a butterfly as because it's so different than the uh, what it becomes. But I say all that to say is uh, to say that some people do have that power um, to see. That's why they're called seers. They see right through things and they even see through, it seems, whatever it is that's on the outside. And one last thing about that, speaking of the alterations and changes that I made, before I went through my one major surgery, the very night before I went through the surgery, I had a dream about a friend of mine, the valedictorian in my high school class, uh, was also under the LGBT umbrella. He was gay. Um, he was... Um, he was what the black community would call or think of as a token or a, a, a derogatory word would be an Oreo is the word they used to use. He was black on the outside, but he, in people's opinions, they thought he acted white. So they call him Oreos, um, black on the outside, white on the inside, chocolate cookies on the outside, white cream filling on the inside. Um, so he got labeled that way. Uh, and tor- try, uh, people tormented him with that, or at least tried to. I don't think he, he did his best not let it bother him because he was so smart. Like I said, he was the valedictorian. But um, um, he did also, they didn't just do that to him because he was a bookworm. They did it to him because he like talked like this and like very, very valley, even though he was from Tampa like me, but he was extra, extra valley and he was dark as midnight. So he, you wouldn't expect to hear the voice coming out of him the way he looked, but he didn't let that stop him. That's just who he was. And uh, he loved white guys. He, as I've seen him with, uh, I'd seen him physically with someone black. So it wasn't like an exclusive thing. Like people always think of people as tokens or uncle Tom's or whatever word you derogatory word you want to put on someone, a snow bunny, someone who's black who dates white people. Because um, it's not always an exclusive thing. It may just be that they prefer white people, um, but will are open to anything. But it is what it is. People have their preferences. But I say all that to say before I went for that surgical alteration, um, the night before I had a dream, but I think it was much more than a dream. It was like a vision. It was 
it was something where he came to me. He had passed away. Like I said, he um, contracted HIV. And before the medications are were what they are now, it took his life. AIDS took his life. But um, before then, after then, he passed away before I had that surgery. But the night before I had the surgery, he came to me in a dream, clear as day. And um, he showed up. Um, but well, here's how it happened. I had the dream um, and this blonde twink showed up. Not really my type, too feminine for me, uh, too flamboyant for me, but he was cute, blonde, blue-eyed twink showed up to me in the dream with a message to me. And um, and I was, I don't even remember what the message was, but it was basically something reassuring me that I'd be okay or that the surgery would be something that would move me forward. A big change, positive change in my life, a good change in my life um, was the message, the, 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 the feeling, the thought behind the, the message that I got from the dream. But when he showed up to me, the blonde guy showed up to me and said he was my friend Cliff, the one that, the valedictorian. And I was like, you're not Cliff. This was this blonde blue eyed twink. And he goes, he didn't say a word. He waved his hand over his face. And when he did, it showed up as Cliff, as I knew him. Dark skinned, same twink. He was young, but uh, complete. he showed up the way I knew him in life. And then he swiped his hand back over his face again. And he turned back into the twink. And I say all that because I believe that he really did come to me. Um, he He was deceased, but I believe he did come to me. His soul came to me, I believe. His spirit came to me, perhaps. Maybe a soul. I think it would have to be a soul because he was an agnostic. He did an atheist agnostic, one of the two. I think, I can't remember which one he said he was, but he, was, he either didn't believe in God or he didn't know if there was a God. That's basically the difference between an atheist and an agnostic. But he still was on that side. And he still, in my mind, in my heart, I believe it was him. But I believe what showed up to me was his actual soul of who he was on the inside, regardless of what we saw him as, what I remember him as and experienced him as uh, in his physical form in life. I think the true self of who he was, was that blonde blue twink that showed up to me in that vision, in that dream. And that that's what his soul actually looked like. Um, but his body, his physical body on earth showed up as the dark skinned brother that I knew him as, as Cliff. Um, so I think I say all that to say, I think that's one more division of, of, uh, of what the spirit is different from the soul, from the body, how they all have their part. And I think the soul is who you truly are. It's who you are before you uh, show up in the flesh and after you're long gone from the flesh. Um, even though what you are on the inside, just like with trans people, who we are on the inside doesn't always, especially at the beginning, reflect who we believe we are on the outside or, you know, who we are on the outside doesn't always truly reflect who we believe ourselves to be on the inside. And I think just like in that dream, who we really are is who we are, uh, is what our soul is, not the physical uh, body we walk in. So I don't know, just my thoughts. And that was the end of them. It's a short reading today anyway, so I didn't mind sharing that with you. Hopefully this finds you well. God willing, I'll see you again next time. Stay safe. Peace be with you. Thank you again. Love you.